Good morning, everybody. <laughs> quite, quite a setup. Well, what an awesome uh, audience of bodhisattvas. I'm speechless. I better not say anything to wreck your profound silence. But I will anyway, because uh, the schedule says <clears throat> Dharma talk. I apologize in advance. It is great uh, that you're here. I hope so far uh, you don't regret it and that you're having a good enough time. It's a good thing to sit all day. A very good thing. And I do believe, firmly believe, that there is a virtue in it uh, beyond uh, what you can think or feel. This morning, uh, I would like to talk about a short sutta from the Pali Canon, the earliest recorded Buddhist teachings. Some years ago, when I was uh, still living here at the Zen Center, here at Green Gulch, I made a collection uh, from the vast Pali Canon of suttas that I thought would be of particular uh, relevance to Zen students. And I made a little booklet called Suttas from the Old Way. And that booklet uh, is available as a, a download on the Everyday Zen website if you're interested. And it's the subject of our Wednesday afternoon Dharma seminars uh, through these next couple of months. So this particular text I want to talk about today uh, is from the uh, Anguttara Nikaya uh, section of the Pali Canon. Usually that phrase is translated as gradual sayings, gradual length sayings. <clears throat> and the reason that I chose this text is because it is the original source in Buddhist teaching for what later became highly developed in the Mahayana Sutras as the teaching of Buddha nature. The notion that I think all of us feel intuitively that all beings are by their natures Buddha, that all beings are sacred and to be fully respected as awesome creatures. I think somehow we think that's true, we feel that. We don't need Buddhism to tell us that, but it is uh, an important feature of Mahayana Buddhist teachings and this sutta is the source of that. So I'm going to read you in its entirety uh, this short text and then comment on it. And it's a little uh, funny language because it's an old, old translation. I, I don't think, as far as I'm aware, there is an, I couldn't find anyway a newer translation. So this is kind of old language. But he, here's what it says. The finger snap. That's the title given. The, the finger snap. This mind, monks, is luminous. This is the Buddha talking. This mind, monks, is luminous, but it is defiled by taints that come from without. 
But this, the uneducated many folk, the common people, do not understand as it really is. Wherefore, for the uneducated common people, there is no cultivation of mind, I declare. This mind, monks, is luminous, but it is cleansed of taints that come from without. This, the educated disciple, understands as it really is. Wherefore, for the educated disciple, there is cultivation of mind, I declare. Monks, if just for the lasting of a finger snap, a monk indulges the thought of goodwill, such a one is to be called a monastic, not empty of result is their musing. They abide doing the teacher's bidding. They are ones who take good advice. They eat the country's alms food to some purpose. What then should I say of those who make much of such a thought? Monks, if just for the lasting of a finger snap, a monk cultivates a thought of goodwill, such a one is to be called a monastic. Not empty of result is, is their musing. They abide doing the teacher's bidding. They are ones who take advice, and they eat the country's alms food to some purpose. What then should I say of those who make much of such a thought? Monks, if just for the lasting of a finger snap, a monk gives attention to a thought of goodwill, such a one is to be called a monastic. Not empty of result is their musing. They dwell doing the master's bidding. They are the ones who take advice and they eat the country's alms food to some purpose. What then should I say of those who make much of such a thought? Monks, whatsoever things are evil, have part in evil, are on the side of evil, all such have mind for their cause. First arises mind as the forerunner of them, and those evil things follow after. Monks, I know not of any other single thing of such power to cause the arising of evil states, if not yet arisen, or to cause the waning of good states, if already arisen, as negligence. In the person who is negligent, evil states, if not already, already arisen, will arise, and good states, if arisen, will wane. Monks, I know not of any other single thing of such power to cause the arising of good states, if not yet arisen, or to cause the waning of evil states, if already arisen, as earnestness. In the one who is earnest, good states, if not yet arisen, will arise, and evil states, if arisen, will wane. Monks, I know not of any other single thing of such power to cause the arising of evil states, if not yet arisen, or to cause the 
waning of good states if arisen as indolence. In the person who is indolence, evil states not yet arisen do arise, and good states, if arisen, do wane. And that's the translation. I, I updated the language a little bit as I read it. Maybe you could tell. But anyway, that's the translation by uh, F.L. Woodward from the Polytext Society. I don't know when it was translated, but possibly in the 19th century. That's the whole text. So what is, what is this telling us? Well, first of all, that the nature of our mind is luminous, like light, pure, reflective, beautiful, the actual light of the universe in which all things appear. So this is the nature of our consciousness. This is what we really are. This is who we really are. In other words, we really are Buddhas. We all observe, of course, that we don't feel like Buddhas. And we look around at the world, and it doesn't feel as if everybody we see is a Buddha. So what's wrong? Why? What's wrong is that this luminous mind has been covered over with defilements, so that the luminosity, although it is still there, can't shine forth. So that's the next point the sutra makes, that our inherent luminosity, although it never goes away, is covered over, and therefore it needs to be uncovered. So this idea of the basic and inherent luminosity of our minds was emphasized tremendously in Mahayana Buddhism, where it is called Buddha nature. And there is a whole class of Mahayana Buddhist sutras that specialize in this topic, Buddha nature. Sometimes they call it the Tathagatagarbha teaching, uh, which literally means the womb of the Tathagatas, the womb of the Buddhas, the matrix of all the Buddhas. All the Buddhas are born from Buddha nature. And all beings are, by their nature, Buddhas, endowed with this Buddha nature as their inherent inheritance. Sometimes this Tathagatagarbha, mother of all the Buddhas, is depicted as a goddess, a beautiful goddess called Prajnaparamita, wisdom beyond wisdom. The wisdom of emptiness is the mother of all the Buddhas. So let us just like, take a moment here and reflect on what great news this is. We should all be very happy to hear this, right? You might have wondered, now you know. You are fundamentally fine, better than fine. You are fundamentally wise, pure, luminous, you shine light. 
on the whole world. And it doesn't matter how smart you are or how diligent you are, that light is there in you. You were born with it. It will never go away. It is your fundamental nature no matter what. That is great, right? That's really good news. But still, as we know, we have to do something about the fact that our shining nature is covered over with defilements that are not inherent. It says specifically, these defilements come from outside. And in, in, in Zen, we say <clears throat> they come from our ancient twisted karma, which we cannot ignore. We have to uh, respect it. We have to deal with it. We have to investigate it. And as educated, aware people, that's our job. Ordinary people, as the sutra says, may not appreciate this and may not cultivate their minds, but we, but we do. So we undertake to cultivate our mind, to slowly and surely clean it of its defilements from without so that it will, on its own, shine again. We won't have to make it shine. And that's our practice. This is what we're doing in our practice. Little by little, learning how to take care of our life so that our life will naturally, on its own, become as beautiful as possible, as beautiful as it uniquely will be for each one of us. <clears throat> and it's a beautiful thing <clears throat> that the ancient word for this, which I think is here quite um, exactly translated as cultivation, comes from agriculture. You cultivate your fields. That means you, you work on the soil to make it smooth and full of air and light. You pull weeds when they appear. And you're careful and diligent, watching over your fields every day. And that's the spirit of our practice, to cultivate our lives so that we can grow, so that we can be nourished and nourish others. Next, the sutra says, and this is so great, even for a second, if even for a second, the time it takes to snap your fingers once, if even for a second, you bear witness to the thought of goodwill. You will be a holy person. Even more so if you notice that thought and cultivate it. Such a person is to be called uh, a monastic, a monk. Not empty of result is her musing. She abides doing the master's bidding, or the teacher's bidding. In other words, even for a finger snap, you cultivate, notice, 
appreciate this thought of goodwill. You will be transformed by that momentary thought. You will become a follower of the Buddha way. You will be one who, as the sutra says, takes good advice and eats the country's alms food to some purpose. So in ancient times, uh, in a way, it's maybe still the case. The Nastics lived on the food that people donated to them. If people didn't donate food, they didn't eat. And in exchange for the donation of food, their obligation was to practice well so that they would eat the food and make good use of it, not waste the food. So, if even for a finger snap, one should indulge, cultivate, give attention to a thought of goodwill, how much more wonderful would it be if someone would devote themselves to cultivating such a thought? Next, the sutra goes on to bring up the, ideal, uh, the idea of evil. Evil. What is evil? Is there such a thing as evil? Well, uh, we can for sure notice what we might call uh, evil actions and evil impulses in the world. The world is full of really nasty and destructive stuff. It's full of unfairness, injustice, all kinds of violence, all kinds of things so heinous that you would rather not even hear about them. People do such things. And if we are really honest and carefully observant, we will notice, even within ourselves, such impulses. Although, hopefully, we are self-possessed enough not to act on them. But because we can notice these, the germ, at least, of these impulses in ourselves, we can understand them. Hurricanes, typhoons, floods, raging, forest fires, are also enormously destructive, but we don't call them evil. They just happen. But we do think of human action as being evil because we think of human beings as having volition, choice, and therefore responsible for what they do. So here the Buddha is saying that the cause of all evil is the condition of our minds, which surely must be true. The wind and the earthquake don't have minds, so they are not evil, but human beings have minds, and so we are capable of evil. And why does that happen? Why do people do evil things? Why do they allow their minds to be inclined that way? 
And the sutra says it's because they are negligent, they are lazy. They do not take the trouble to pay attention to the condition of their minds. And here, mind in Buddhism doesn't only mean mental, it also means emotional, volitional, feelings, everything that is not physical is called mind. In other words, some people do not even for a finger snap cultivate goodwill, good intentions, goodness. And naturally then, just like water flows downhill unless you pump it uphill, their minds will, spire, will spiral downward and driven by their ancient twisted karma, their conditioning, they will do evil, which will condition their minds to do further evil. And it goes on and on and on. Now, here the sutra says evil, probably another translation could have been used. But to be clear, the sutra is not just talking about big, horrible, evil, what we would call evil actions. It also is talking about everyday, ordinary phenomena that we all experience and all do. The odd, unkind thought or word, a little bit of mean-spiritedness in our thought or word or deed, an ordinary everyday lack of generosity, the failure to really see and appreciate another person because somehow we don't like them or we don't respect them, little cheating things that we all do, or little bits of lying or exaggeration, stuff like that that everybody is doing every day. It also means all that. Basically, the failure to take care of our thoughts and our conduct, the failure to love and include others. The reason why the sutra brings up evil in all these senses in this connection is because it is this lack of attention, this lack of awareness, this laziness, this negligence, That is the reason why our minds are covered over, why our luminous mind is not shining through. On the other hand, the person who follows the way, that person who may very well have a mind just as full of evil conditioning as anybody else, maybe even worse than average, that person, despite their conditioning, if they are diligent and earnest, as our translation says, if they will make a careful and sustained effort to cultivate goodness, encourage goodness within themselves, that person will eventually, little by little, uncover the luminous mind that is inherently and spontaneously good, and they will be inspired even by themselves and they will become awakened Buddhas, serene and happy people, blessings for this world. So that's basically 
what the sutra says. And in Zen practice in particular, you know, it, we really prize this idea of Buddha nature. And we really emphasize it. I think maybe we emphasize it more strongly than the idea of gradual cultivation. We pay attention to that too, but we really emphasize Buddha nature. Buddha nature is the secret sauce of Zazen. That's the secret to Zazen. Strong faith in Buddha nature, your own Buddha nature. That's how come we can sit on a day like today with a lot of confidence and without having to worry or fuss. Now, of course, we're making effort, right? We're trying to sit up straight, trying to pay attention to our breathing, not chase after thoughts. We're really just sitting here with the fundamental concrete fact of our being alive, of our being breathing, living, conscious human beings sitting here right in the middle of a luminous universe with a luminous mind. But because we know this, we don't have to stress out or worry or push ourselves out of shape in order to do zazen. We don't have to make heroic efforts to defeat ourselves. We can sit with ease and our effort can be joyful because we have confidence in our true nature, which is a very different thing from making effort desperately to overcome our overwhelming negativity. Now, I, of course, have no idea what all of you are experiencing today in your sitting, and everyone is experiencing something a little different. Perhaps you are making a desperate effort to save yourself from drowning. And sometimes it's just like that. But I'm here to tell you this morning, don't worry. Trust yourself. Trust your mind, trust your heart, trust your true nature. It's really the truth. You are a Buddha. And eventually, maybe you won't put it that way to yourself, but you will feel that. You will feel that confidence. And I can guarantee that because the sutra says so. <laughs> and I have been testing out the truth of these teachings for many, many decades. And so far, they prove to be exactly true. The classical Zen teaching about Buddha nature, I'm sure many of you know, is found in a little story, as all the Zen stories, you know, without a lot of doctrine or words. It's just little tiny stories 
of encounters between uh, Zen practitioners in days gone by. So there's a little story uh, about the famous Chinese master uh, Zhao Zhou. So, as we said, it is a very important teaching in Zen, this teaching of Buddha nature. And not only do human beings, all of them without exception, have Buddha nature, but so does every other thing that exists, including animals, plants, everything has Buddha nature. And this thought is very much developed in Chan and Zen teachings. And the idea is, as you're doing today, you investigate Buddha nature. You discover it for yourself. So that's the background to this little story. So here's, here's a monastic who is doing that work, really trying to investigate their Buddha nature. And, and they have doubts about it. So they go to the great master, Zhao Zhou, and they say, very famous story in Zen, does the dog have Buddha nature? And Zhao Zhou says, yes, of course, the dog has Buddha nature. And the monastic says, well, if the dog has Buddha nature, how come she's so scruffy and scrungy and smells so bad? And maybe there was a scruffy, scrungy dog walking by at the time, I don't know. I just don't want you dog lovers to think that the Chinese monastics didn't like dogs, you know. <laughs> anyway, how come if the dog has Buddha nature, she's so scruffy and scrungy? And Zhao Zhou replied, well, it's because she knows better, this dog, but she transgresses anyway. She knows better but she transgresses anyway. So this all might seem a little bizarre, but think of it like this. Do you have Buddha nature? Yes, you do. I do, then why is my life so funky? And why am I having so much damn trouble all the time? You know better but you mess up anyway. So what does that mean? Well, Zhao Zhao is putting a funny and a friendly spin on your suffering. He is telling you that your suffering is not as desperate as it may appear to you, and that your self-blame is misplaced. This is, to me, such a profound and comforting thought. That the suffering of the world, including your own personal suffering, is not a mistake or a tragedy. Difficult as it may be, it is exactly the suffering we need. It is just the difficulty we need in order to become a Buddha one day. Of course, this does not mean that we ignore our suffering or we are joyful when we suffer. That would be absurd. 
It doesn't mean that we ignore cultivation of our minds, that we don't take care of our suffering, that we don't find the best way to deal with it. But it does mean that we do all that with confidence and with a great hope that in the end the journey will be worthwhile and will get us to where we need to go. Just like you, I am always thinking about climate change. And I can apply this same teaching to that. We have made a terrible mess of the climate, spiraling down without knowing what we were doing because we weren't paying attention. And now we have a big problem on our hands and we are not able to do anything that will reverse this problem. And we could think, wow, what a terrible mistake we made. Maybe even like we human beings are mistakes since this is what we have done. But no, although we always have to live with our mistakes, we can and we must start immediately to cultivate, to mitigate the suffering. And it's an urgent thing now, urgent to mitigate what we're doing to the climate. And we can do that, and we will do that with confidence that we have received the suffering that we need to make a better world, and that we will do that despite all our past mistakes, because we are Buddhas and our minds are luminous, we will do this. And the same is true of my life and yours, as well as our collective life on Earth. In other words, this Buddha nature teaching is really important and really empowering and in a way is essential for humanity because it makes the efforts that we have to continue to do in our living joyful and empowered. The story of Zhaozhou and the monastic, however, is not over yet. There's more to it. Later, or possibly the same day, Another monastic, or maybe it's the same one, again asks Zhaozhou, does a dog have Buddha nature? And this time Zhaozhou answers, no. If this is the famous story that everybody knows, moo, no. The dog does not have Buddha nature. And then the monastic says this time, but wait, all beings have Buddha nature, how come this dog doesn't have Buddha nature? And Zhaozhou says, because he still has impulsive consciousness. Now it's important to understand that Zhaozhou is not here giving a different answer from the first answer. He's just completing, rounding off the first answer with the second. Does the dog, do you and I, have Buddha nature? 
Yes, but no. This is very, very important and, and beautifully realistic. And this is what I love about Zen teaching. It is so realistic, you know, so down to earth, so human. Are we Buddhists? Yes, we are Buddhists. Yes, we can have confidence in that. And we sit on our cushions as if we were Buddhas. We trust our body and mind as if our own body and mind were the body and mind of the Buddha so we don't worry and we don't wear ourselves out with our striving and we enjoy our practice. But, ask again, are we Buddhas? No. We're merely pathetic, sorry human beings with confused minds, weak wills, and limited physical and mental capacities, which we can observe very well in ourselves. So we sit here as Buddhas with our aches and our pains, with our obsessive thinking that we can't seem to control at all, and we're not surprised, and we're not dismayed. We are wrecks. We are a mess. We're human. People say to me, I have this you know, terrible, persistent thought that I'm not good enough. How do I get rid of that thought? And I always say, you're right. <laughs> you're not good enough. <laughs> you're human. No human being could possibly be good enough. Just look around at the world. We're wrecks. <laughs> and we're Buddhists. From the standpoint of our Buddha nature, we can look at our sorry humanness with eyes of compassion. We can have compassion for ourselves, for our friends, for the whole world. We are doing our best. We will get there. It'll be okay. And this is something that we can feel in our practice and that we will feel in our practice, especially in our sitting we will look at ourselves and our world and we will see real problems and we won't pretend that all that gets covered over with a patina of luminous Buddha mind. The problems are very real. And so that's why we'll roll up our sleeves and do what we can to address them. Knowing that we will not have to do that by ourselves. That everything and everyone will help us. And even if it turns out that we perish and our problems are not yet solved, and the world's problems are not yet solved, we know that the next people coming will work on these problems too because that's what Buddhas always do. They work on problems with energy and hope on and on and on 
always going forward, forever and ever, one step after the other. And even if you feel that, just for a finger snap, that is a powerful, indelible beginning. And if for two or three or more finger snaps, so much the better. So lately, uh, in our Dharma seminar, we were reading the poems of Emily Dickinson, who is such a great uh, poet of the heart and the spirit. She is our American Buddha. And I find her poems so often express exactly what we're feeling and thinking in our practice. The light as well as the dark. And, and, I, and I think this really makes sense because she lived a subversive life, you know, appearing to be a quiet, uh, retiring person living in her parents' house uh, in Massachusetts. But really, she was a contemplative, bravely facing the human condition and never allowing the prevalent ideas of her society to cloud her mind and prevent her from looking deeply at life as it really is. So this is a poem, I close with this poem, about her resistance to the prevailing notions of the day, specifically about identity, which here she discusses in terms of baptism, as you'll see, about how a person finds their own true identity, their Buddha nature, and wears their true crown as a Buddha. This is the poem. I'm seated, C-E-D-E-D, I'm seated. I've stopped being theirs. The name they dropped upon my face with water in the country church is finished using now. And they can put it up with my dolls, my childhood, and the string of spools I've finished threading, too. Baptized before, without choice, but this time, consciously, of grace, unto supremest name, called to my full, The crescent dropped, existence's whole arc filled up with one small diadem. My second rank, too small the first, crowned, crowing. On my father's breast, a half-unconscious queen, but this time adequate, erect, with a will to choose or to reject, and I choose just a crown. So this is what Buddha nature feels like. 
a new identity, a true identity, apart from all the social identities that have been assigned to us and that we have internalized. This is what we really are. This is the crown we wear. And this is the path we walk. Thank you all very, very much for walking this path. It's very inspiring to me to see so many of you here today on this path together with, with me and all of us. Please sit with your crown on for the rest of the day and enjoy your new shining identity. Thank you very much. Recording stopped.